think Michael took that whole scripture that talks about we're on holy ground and you take off your sandals. He took his socks off. <laughs> so we're going to do the same thing just here in a moment when we have prayer asking the Lord to guide us. Symbolic. A little kid's socks will remind you that we're on holy ground. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're thankful for the many lessons we can look at in nature. We're thankful for the many lessons we can learn from each other. Thankful for the little children that can teach us just to pause and soak up your lessons around us. So Lord, we do recognize we are on holy ground, that this is your word. These are your words that you're trying to convey from the Bible. I pray that you'll lead and guide so that we can all see Jesus clearly and see his source of sustenance, ours as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So a few weeks ago, I, a couple of weeks ago, I shared with you how I had come back from Shadow Empire, and it was late, I was wearing my suit, I came out to see the chicks and make sure they were going, they were to bed all right, make sure the chickens were in bed, and I also noticed that my sheep were waiting for me right past the gate to put them into their sheep pen, but they seemed really aloof from me, they seemed to stand back from me because I was wearing different clothing, and you remember me sharing this? And it seemed like for a moment that they didn't even recognize me. And I thought for sure it was maybe the darkness, but I began to realize I come out here at dark every single night and they come up to me anyway. And what's the difference? Well, it's the dress shoes, it's the, it's the clothes. It was, the voice was the same, but the shepherd seemed different. And we talked about how they stand aloof at times like that, seeming skittish, seeming unwilling to approach. And the solution that I only thing I could think of at the time was just to kind of, kneel down on my haunches like this without getting onto the ground altogether and soothingly call them by name. And the one that usually comes up to me, Shauna, she came right up and she placed her face right in my hands. Almost like, all right, I'm trusting you. Are you really, <laughs> are you really him? And I began to just talk to her. And the other one stood still at aloof behind Shauna. And so we talked about how Jesus, his voice, his voice is what we need at this time. His voice is what we really need, and it can make all the difference. It can soothe, it can encourage us, it can challenge us as well, because no shepherd would be complete without his rod, right? And so we find this analogy of the shepherd represents complete trust. Trust enough to place your face in the hands of the shepherd. I think we need to do it more now than any other time in earth's history. There are things that you are aware of during the week, that I'm aware of during the week, that I want to lay aside and say, Lord Jesus, I know that the world seems out of control at times, but I'm going to completely trust you no matter what. And his voice has been echoing down through time. We saw in the Garden of Eden how there he was after the fall of humanity with longingness, with sadness as well, and you find him calling to them in the cool of the day, trying to get their attention. What did they do? They acted like those sheep. They stood aloof. They, they, were, they were in their own world, if you will. They were dressing themselves in fig leaves. They were, and they were hiding from the, the voice of the shepherd. And today we're going to look at the ministry of Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross, all in one swing, to show what does his voice look like? What sustains the shepherd during those times of darkness? And next time we'll deal with Pentecost and the second coming. So when I look at the voice of Jesus and his teachings, I am more and more convinced that we will hear his voice ringing through all the teachings we've ever taught, that we will see it in Revelation, that we will see it in Daniel, that we will see it all the way through the Bible. We will see really the voice of someone 
behind those words, and it's really the unspoken voice of the Father. And as I throw that out there for you to consider, I'm not alone in that consideration. Jesus himself in John chapter 14, and I'm not going to put it on the screen this time. I want you to read it out of your own Bible. John chapter 14 is something I've been reflecting on lately. And as I look at this chapter, the words of Jesus make it very clear that his words are not really his own words. His words are the words of Jesus. That's why when we speak about the things of God, we speak from, about the word of God, we have to realize that we are representing the one who's behind the words of Jesus, the Father himself. And that's a heavy load. That's why we put that invocation at the beginning of the service, and then I'm going to be kneeling and praying before I, pre I preach from now on, because I just sense that we are at a time when the Father's words need to be heard the most. John chapter 14, you're familiar with verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. So he links from the very first verse of John 14. If you believe in God, believe also in me. He links the two together. We have an easy time in the 21st century believing in Jesus, but then we need to do the reverse as well. Believe in God the Father as well. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms in some translations. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, what? I will come again. Or, in the Greek, I am coming back. As soon as the words went out of his mouth, the plan was already underway from the return. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So you'll be together with the Lord in the Father's house. Notice the emphasis on the Father here. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas comes along. We know his, his story from other parts of the Bible. Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So the words of Jesus tell us that if we follow him, we will know the way to the Father, to that fa the Father's house that he has prepared for us, that place where we read about Revelation 21, no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow, that place of complete rest, that place where there's no more of these trials that we're dealing with in our world's history now, that way is Jesus. So Jesus equates his words, his methodology, his miracles, everything about him, he says, is pointing you to the way, and the way to the Father. If you had known me, he goes on, verse 7, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Now imagine being told that. You've seen the Father, and all you've seen is Jesus. We haven't seen Jesus physically, have we? Maybe some of us have seen him in a dream or a vision, or we've read about him in the scriptures, but, but it, it seems a little foggy, like we're seeing through a glass dimly. And there they were with Jesus, and the Bible says you're more blessed because you didn't have to look through and see Jesus face to face like that. You're seeing by faith what they had right there in reality. They have Jesus right there in front of them. We think that's a benefit, living in the 21st century. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And of course, Philip says, well, Lord, show us the Father, and that's sufficient for us. What is Jesus saying? Keep reading. You'll find out. He says, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. Who is speaking through Jesus then? 
The Father who dwells in him does the work. That's the same equation we find in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the same equation is for us. We accept Jesus. We say we, we are inviting you. We're inviting you into not just my life, into my very being. That means things have to die along the way for that to take place. A crucifixion of sorts has to take place. Jesus, we know, even before he's crucified, he says, believe that I am in the Father, the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So he tells us his very words, his very works, were really just the Father working through him. They had seen Jesus, as you read through John, do the miracle with the water to the wine, right? Or the juice. We've, we see miracles of people being healed of blindness in John chapter 9. We see miracles of people who have leprosy. You go through the whole, all the Gospels, combine them. You start listing up all the miracles they had seen up to this point in John chapter 14, where we're getting close to this, this last moments with Jesus. And he has done miracle after miracle after miracle. And he's saying, if you don't believe my words, then look and see what I've done. Who else was able to do this in the nation of Israel? It was the power of the Father through me that you see these things. And most assuredly, I say to you, verse 12, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. So that same Father will dwell in us. Jesus will dwell in us. And you find he mentions the Holy Spirit later on, in us. So the whole Godhead bodily in us will enable us to do greater works than even Jesus. I think the hindrance to that is the fact that we are not focusing on the words of Jesus enough. The words of Jesus, I think, are the key. It keeps being repeated to me over and over again as I'm reading Scripture. Know the words of Jesus and all the Old Testament background too, we know that, but know and look at the words of Jesus carefully. Because if we don't, next week I'll get into the idea, I believe we're preventing a last day Pentecost because we are not fully allowing him to dwell in us. And the way that we do that is we look at his words, we trust his words, we trust what he's saying, we trust his voice, and then we realize that it's not him, it's actually the Father through him, and so we actually allow the Godhead into us. And whatever you ask in my name, verse 13, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. So he's talking about, you've got to trust his words if you're going to obey his commandments. And he, then he'll send you another helper that he may abide with you forever or live in you, as some translations say, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Maybe he's not totally there yet as far as we get to this writing, but we know by the time we get to Pentecost, the 40 days in the upper room in the book of Acts, we find they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice the equation there. I will not leave you orphans, verse 18. I will come to you. He's going to come to us through the Holy Spirit. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. At that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, 
And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. He's going to keep showing us himself. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Keep reading from there if you want. But as I read those words, a question comes to mind. What do you notice about what Jesus says about his own words? Isn't it clear? They're not his. It's the whole Godhead, if you will. You find the Father, Jesus says, sent me, and I testify to the Father, and then the Father sends the Holy Spirit through the Son. Look at the book of Acts. You'll find Peter in his first speech after multitudes are converted. He talks about how Jesus has sent this thing to you, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And so it's very clear. The Father sends the Holy Spirit. Who sends it? The Father sends the Holy Spirit through the Son. The Father, the Father, the Father, the Father. You find them all over the place in the words of Jesus. The Holy Spirit then reminds us of the words of Jesus, which, by the way, are the words of the Father. (laughs) And as a result of those words and this whole process, they reside in me and in you. That's how we have oneness. That's how we have unity. That's how we have a united mission to our world. That's John 14. Now, if I go ahead and I talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for a little while, if the Father is the one who sends the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, and the Spirit reminds us of Jesus' words, then following the teachings of Jesus will cause the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Then why have we not emphasized it as strongly as we should? I think we have tried here at Anderson. I believe, as I look back through, I even listened to the sermons of years ago on the web when we first considered coming here, and I noticed there were seeds being planted all along the way about the teachings of Jesus. I'm just taking it to another logical conclusion, which is a re-emphasis on the teachings of Christ. As a result of that re-emphasis, which I believe is not linked in any way to these weird, fangled ideas of spiritual formation or biblical foundations for ministry, whatever you want to call it. It's linked to a clear study of the Word of God. Not something of emptying yourself, but of allowing a filling of yourself from the words and the presence of God himself. And so that results in them residing in me, and then I become the person that they want me to be. Let me correct that right now. They want is not correct. They want me to be. They want me to be like Jesus, who was like the Father, who, if you look at the Comforter now, the Holy Spirit, do you realize the Comforter almost seems like the humblest member of the God? You hardly ever see the Comforter. You see him as a wind in the Old Testament. there hovering upon the waters. You see him periodically, the Spirit upon people in the Old Testament. You see him coming in as a mighty rushing wind at Pentecost and making a statement. People, people could always say, well, that's just a wind or that's just a power from God. The Holy Spirit is what we really need. And, that, and the Holy Spirit himself will only come as we know the Father and the Son and we ask them all to come because they're not going to come in separate packages in essence. We sometimes package the Holy Spirit and say he's way off there in the future. No, the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son want to dwell in each one of us right here this morning. 
And that realization comes clearly if we see what Jesus has done for us. So the plan of salvation is you will be like the Father. That is the person that we want you to be. As I was reading through the scripture and saying, Lord, all right, what are you saying to me? Simple question. He basically said, you're going to be like the Father. Just like your children, for good or for bad, will be like the father or the mother. They influence them, the parent. God's influence is totally good. And so if we allow that influence over time, it will make us more and more. You know, you've heard the expression, he's just like his father, or just like, you know, she's just like her mother, or they're just like their parents, right? So you've heard these expressions, it's nothing as far as rocket science. God says, I want you to be like me. And how do I become like him? I look at Jesus. And I can tell you right now, I have to look at him all the time because I know my shortcomings, I know the generational sins under the third and fourth generation. Look back, you'll see, even in your own life, there are things hindering you, even from the past, that God wants to deal with and he wants to make you this person. It's a matter of acknowledging them. And so I'm going to look at Jesus for a little while with you. And I'm going to show you how the shepherd himself needs sustenance. Jesus himself, we find in Luke chapter 22, he comes out and goes, as his custom was, to the Mount of Olives. What was his custom? What was his ethos? What was his behavior that developed like a work ethic, if you will? What was his ethic? He would go up to the Mount of Olives to pray. That was his custom. Because if we notice from the text, that's what he's doing. So he has a habit of coming up to this mountain, praying, his disciples coming with him, and when he's at the place, there's a, obviously then a place that he's used to going and embracing the Father and, and praying to the Father and then coming forth for ministry. He says to them, pray that you enter not into temptation. And he was parted from them about a stone's cast away and he kneeled down and prayed saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That scripture reading, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, is what is being experienced here by Jesus himself. He is facing that valley of death. He's facing the fact that his disciples aren't fully committed and there's even one that's going to betray him. He's facing all of these realities and where does he find his sustenance? The Father. And there appeared unto him an angel. And what's the Father send? He sends an angel from heaven and the angel strengthens him. Why? Well, look at the next verse. He's in agony. He prays more earnestly, so he's strengthened, and he still begins to sweat blood. This is the type of mental anguish. I know very few people who have gone through this. Maybe you know a few, but to be able to get to the mental state where you're literally sweating blood instead of regular perspiration, you've got, there's something that's going on. Maybe some of our individuals who are experts in that could tell us more sometime, but as we look at this, great anguish, he is sustained and strengthened and gets through it, comes to his disciples and says, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you enter not into tempta temptation. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude. So there he is, speaking to his disciples, words of encouragement, words of challenge. Pray, pray that you not enter into temptation. Wasn't that part of the Lord's prayer? Wasn't that part of praying to the Father? And here he is telling them, instructing them again, Pray that you don't enter into temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And here it is. Look. Here they are. Behold, it says, a multitude. And he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. 
What does your darkest night look like in your life so far? I've seen relationships broken. I've seen uh, all kinds of things as a pastor, and even in my own upbringing, I've seen all kinds of brokenness. And the darkest moments for you may look different at different parts of your life. But the question is, who sustained you during those times? I have found no other source. Even when thoughts came to me of basically going out in a blaze of glory as a young, fanciful, rebellious teenager, the thought came to me, you know what? That's not what you want to do. What was that still, small voice that sustained me through those times? The voice of the Holy Spirit, yes, that still, small voice, but really God was getting me through those times even when I didn't even realize it. This word strengthen is the same word that Paul uses in Acts 9.19, excuse me, Luke uses in Acts 9.19, speaking of Paul, how Paul had been blinded, and he, he basically was, if you look at the text, he almost looks depressed, or he's just kind of downcast, he won't eat, and he gets healed, and he's strengthened then after that by eating. He's sustained by some physical force, or for some physical energy, if you will, or some physical substance, whereas here, Jesus is not sustained by something physical. He is sustained by something spiritual, and I believe this spiritual sustenance, the sustenance of the shepherd, is what we need as well. It's this, not just him sending an angel to strengthen us, but it's the fact of knowing the Father has, has sent something from heaven to guide us through that time. And so the sustenance of the shepherd is our sustenance, and as far as our young people, here is the answer for your FBI sheet, 2 Corinthians 5.21. What ultimately is going on here as he is being weighed down and having to be sustained? 2 Corinthians 5 tells us it's more than just a heavy prayer request. It is the very weight of sin. 2 Corinthians 5, as we look at this, especially down here in verse 18 and onward, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So even at these moments of anguish and these moments of weight bearing, if you will, spiritual weight bearing, who is in him? It's the Father reconciling the world to himself. That's his sustenance. Not imputing their trespasses to them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So we need the same sustenance. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us, same God who was in Jesus, pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Was Jesus sin? Yes. Became sin. He didn't sin. Became sin. As far as the record books, if you will, if you want to get into court language, are concerned, he took upon every shame, every sin in this room that we've ever committed, and it was imputed to him at the cross. It was taken upon him so that we might go free. Can you imagine feeling the guilt and the shame of all the sins of people who've ever lived in those moments, it would destroy you just to bear your own. Imagine being the creator of, the uni of this world and now looking at the hurt and the shame, not just because people have hurt other people, but because really they've, they've hurt you and you're bearing all of that. 
in that Garden of Gethsemane. What's happening in the Garden of Gethsemane? A transfer is underway. A transfer that will only be complete as he dies and expires on the cross, dying prematurely, according to Pilate, because he has to send a soldier to figure out, hey, is he dead yet? I mean, prematurely, under the weight of our sin and a willingness to say, it is finished, I'm done, I'm dying for them right now. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us Jesus became sin for us and it's sin's weight that crushes God. That crushes him. And that's where another question comes to me. If it's crushing him, where do I hear his voice the loudest then? I hear it the loudest at the cross. I know we don't worship the cross. I know we, there's an aversion to even having crosses and things. I understand that. We don't want to get into an empty cross. We, have a, we should have an empty cross because there's a Savior who's up in heaven. But as far as the emphasis of our teaching, you can read through hundreds, and I've read through quite a few other hundreds, of statements from our church founders and Ellen White, and you will find their emphasis on the cross. It's not like it's been a mute point. The Adventist church has always emphasized it. Some people have made us out to be like we haven't. But the cross is where we hear the voice of God the loudest. It's at the cross that we hear not just Jesus crying out, but I believe the anguished cry of the Father through the piercing, labored words of the Savior. I'll read that again. It is at the cross that we hear the anguished cry of the Father echo through the piercing, labored. That's, he's, he's painfully, there he is. Every breath he takes is labored and painful. Through the pierced, piercing, labored words of the Savior. And if you want text for that, Luke 23, 34, he says, Father, forgive them. He's basically trusting that the Father is there with him in that darkest time. We also then find that the Son emphasis is, is emphasized by a Roman soldier who looks upon all these things and says, surely this was the Son of God. And then we find someone being convicted in their hearts that Jesus is the Savior. A dying thief next to Jesus. Who's convicting them? It's, yeah, he's watching Jesus, but there is a still small voice that's getting to him that's taking him from a cursor to now all of a sudden seeing his blessing. And that's the Holy Spirit. So I find the whole Godhead at the cross basically crying out to humanity and saying, will you be forgiven? Will you allow us to bear what you, what you cannot bear? Imagine Adam and Eve walking out of the garden and the sadness they feel. But imagine God's sadness as he stations flaming sword and angels at those gates. You ever hear an anguished cry of a parent or maybe you were that parent where someone, a child that you loved just walked away and you just, you just wish you could call them back. That's the cry we hear all the way from Eden, all the way down to here. It's the cry of the Father saying, Will you please turn around? Totally innocent cry. Totally innocent father who's been literally, as you see how they treated Jesus, beaten, bruised, tortured by his children. And yet he still cries out to them. So Jesus at the cross, we find, is really representing the father and how the world treats the father. And we find in Steps of Christ this beautiful little book that somebody gave me years ago when I was far from God. It says, It is true that men sometimes become ashamed of their sinful ways and give up some of their evil habits, 
before they're conscious that they are being drawn to Christ. But whenever they make an effort to reform from a sincere desire to do right, it is the power of Christ that is drawing them. Even in those moments where I just, you know, said, I'm never going to get high or get drunk, who was really prompting that? Was it my weird mafia-type philosophy at the time? No, it was the Holy Spirit saying, boy, you don't need to even go there. When others were committing suicide and the thought came to my mind at a certain point, I said, no, only, goody, only wimps do that. But really, the purer motive was, Murray, I am saving you for something. You are never going to do that. And so as you look at it, someone who is reforming in small little ways, on their, seemingly on their own, even, she says, even those reforms were prompted by the power of Christ. And that was the power of Christ that was drawing them, an influence of which they are unconscious works upon the soul, and the conscience is quickened, and the outward life is amended. And as Christ draws them to look upon his cross, so they can amend things on their own if they want, but eventually they're like, wow, this is good. And then they are connected to the reality. That's why the health expo, that's why the dinner with the doctor, that's why the health ministries that we're doing, and other ministries, those things prepare the way for the gospel. Someone feels better. Wow, I feel good. And then all of a sudden we hand them a religious tract or a tract that has all those steps of health and at the end it says trust in God. Wow, that's really the power for my health, isn't it? So we find even here, people are making decisions on their own, but then at a certain point we link them to the cross. And as Christ draws them to look upon his cross, to behold him whom their sins have pierced, the commandment comes home to the conscience. The commandment comes home to the conscience. The wickedness of their life, the deep-seated sin of the soul is revealed to them. And they say, wow, this is, I'm just a terrible person. They begin to comprehend something of the righteousness of Christ. Maybe not everything, but something. And exclaim, was all this love, all this suffering, all of this because of me? Looks like I cut it off there. What is sin that it should require such a sacrifice for the redemption of its victim? What have I gotten myself into that it would take God dying for me for me to get back? Search a recess of my soul. Last night I was searching mine. Because even here I am years later as a Christian still looking at things differently, looking back and pondering even struggling with things to this day that I think, all right, Lord, I want victory over this now. And he's saying, I'm going to show you something. Do you really realize the magnitude and weight of that sin? Because you can say, God, forgive me, and be flippant about it. And yeah, I'm forgiven. Go feeling like you're placebo for your mind. You're just fine after that. But really, the weight of it doesn't hit you until you contemplate what Jesus went through on the cross and say, he literally died for me that I could be free from this sin. Why am I holding on to it? In case you're wondering, it's nothing huge or big. It's just when you look at the cross, you look at Jesus more and more, even the small things add up, and you're like, ugh. This humiliation demanded that we might not perish but have everlasting life. Why would God have to be humiliated for me to be lifted up? And when I embrace this, if you look at Desire of Ages now, add that to this one, that prayer of Christ for his enemies, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Embrace the whole world. That's you and me. It took in every sinner that had lived or should live from the beginning of the world, that's Adam and them, all the way down to the end of time, that's us, right? And beyond, upon all rests the guilt of crucifying the Son of God. To all, though, forgiveness is freely offered. Whosoever will may have peace with God and inherit eternal life.
So this embraces us. When I look at the cross and I look at what Jesus has gone through for me and I name that sin and say that's what caused it. And each day it could be something he brings to your conscience different or maybe over a few weeks there's one thing that keeps coming up. That caused his death. Then God embraces you and says, child, I am right here with you. I'm going to help you through that and you will have eternal life. So the question that I came is, all right, Murray, do you still have the assurance of eternal life? Is it bad to have assurance? No. You find it's bad when you're flippantly talking about it and saying, I can do whatever I want then. That's bad. But as far as I'm a child of God, I keep having to go to the cross. I need to be forgiven, and I need to embrace him as he embraces me each day. That message is what's going to bring one flock together at the end of time. You know, the Sabbath and these other truths are are basically teachings that will point you to the cross if you rightly understand them. Next week we'll look at the Sabbath more clearly, how, the, how it points out in our weekly cycle, the cross every day, and how the Sabbath is a capstone for that. And if we neglect that piece or the other piece, then we're basically imbalanced. But it's clear, if we embrace this truth, then we are embraced by God. And so the sustenance of the Savior was really not a thing but a person. It wasn't the angel that came and touched him. It wasn't any of that. It was the father. The father was the one who sent the angel. The father was the one who sent encouragements through that dying thief. The father was the one who, who sends these elements of nature as he's taking his last breath. That's the father who sends those. And he literally, before he even causes the earthquake, he sends darkness to cover the shame of his boy. You're not going to shame my son that way. It was the father who was the one whom Jesus cried out to and trusted was present there for him in those darkest moments. It was the unseen presence of the Father that sustained Jesus. And I believe that's what sustains us. And that's why the soldier cries out, surely this was the Son of God. He recognized that there was sustenance from above for this being who was suffering. Matthew 27, 54 says, seeing all these things, the soldier exclaims, what are all these things? How he suffers so, how he's covered in darkness. No one else has ever been covered in darkness, at least we find in scripture anyway when they're being crucified. And what does the Father do? An unprecedented thing in the Roman society. He covers somebody. And the Roman soldiers wanted him uncovered and shamed before all, even the Jews. And so if we see the Father empowering Jesus to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we trust that he will lead us too. If we see that the Father empowered Jesus to walk through that valley of the shadow of death, then we will trust that he will lead us through as well. And that's in essence, the way the Father treated Jesus. So if we've been crucified with Jesus, he sees, us, he sees Jesus, he sees us as his children, and he'll treat us the same way. He will help us through those darkest times. And those darkest, time, darkest times, I believe, many forms. The biggest one is our sin that separates us from him. Our broken pasts have distorted his image sometimes. Yet Jesus dying on the cross shows us the magnitude of sin and the infinite nature of God. God is love. And so that infinite sustenance is still available in the present tense. So I can believe Jesus loves me. I can say that. I can sing the song. But I must also trust that as I hear that song or sing that song, I also must trust that the Father loves me too. And so I'm going to invite you to do something. This is a decision on your part as to what you want to do with it. Each one to will make a decision in their own way. You can stay seated if you want. You can kneel if you want. You can stand if you want. You can come to the front if you want. You can allow the Holy Spirit to lead you as far as how you want to say, all right, Lord, I believe you love me and I believe the Father. I believe, Father, you love me too. 
But regardless of how you choose to respond to this, I want to invite you to hear this song. And I've chosen a song that just has some guitar in it. Hear the Father's voice for you. As you recognize Jesus' love, you really recognize the Father's love. Why not commit to him anew today? Father in heaven, thank you so much that you still provide that sustenance that you offer to Jesus for each one of us. The knowledge that you love us is part of it. 
but also that you sustain us as a loving father. Maybe a loving father that we didn't know very well in our human experience, but we trust in this spiritual realm that you are our father, that you are the one who will never leave us and forsake us, and you embrace us. And the cross doesn't just show that, it pays the atonement for our sins. And we're thankful for that payment that you made through Jesus for each one of us. Help us to appreciate it. Help us to spend time each day with you all the way until the day when Jesus comes. In the glory, in the glory of the Father, your Father.